my priority was to actually play a role of the manager to the patent portfolio or patent portfolio buckets that I was a co-inventor for. And then I do all of all sort of market research, all sort of uh, uh, which company might be interested in the uh, all of the potential application that this technology has uh, has the potential for. And then um, toward the end of those uh, four months um, intern, I would call, um, I have a list of 120 something potential application for the technology that I have been um, co-inventing uh, for. Lynn, why on earth would you choose to do a PhD of your own volition? That's a good question. Now I'm thinking back why the hell I'm here. To be honest, I didn't know why I uh, chose to do the PhD. But then actually for a lot of uh, other people out there, I was born and raised in Vietnam. Um, I actually did my undergrad in uh, Vietnam. So uh, uh, one thing that I know one thing that I knew at the time was that um, I want to go to America. So um, with a um, background in uh, um, chemistry, uh, I graduated with a um, Bachelor of Science in chemistry. How can I get to America? The easiest way is to get a PhD. The easiest way is to actually get uh, um, the uh, university to give me the admission along with some stipend. That's how I get out. Um, now, looking back, I think that, um, yeah, to answer the question, why PhD, um, I think that the past 20 years of uh, me being uh, uh, on this academia, on this technical road, is actually much more rewarding than I could ever thought of. Okay. All right. Well, don't don't spoil the story too quickly for me. Now you'll take away my job. Um, welcome to How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. On this podcast, we learn about the secrets, stories, and skill sets of amazing people who are ensuring that we can live longer, healthier lives so that smart people like you, dear listener, can contribute more easily in your own informed way. This time around, we're rejoined or joined by the inimitable Lin Lee, a serial startup founder, a startup mentor, uh, and so much more. Currently, a pharmaceutical sciences entrepreneur in residence at UBC, and founding partner of Bioplastics, a biodegradable bioplastic solution. Lynn, apart from being a man of way too many hats, uh, how are you doing and how was the BMO Marathon that you barely trained for? Thank you so much for following up uh, with me on my social. Yes, today is uh, Monday and then uh, I am... Uh, um, I finished the BMO Marathon yesterday, um, and to be honest, this is my first time running the Vancouver Marathon. Uh, as some of you know already, um, I moved to Vancouver in 2020. I signed up for um, uh, Vancouver Marathon 2020, 2021, and obviously it was cancelled. I missed last year because of my uh, um, travel, but then this year, I've done it. And then actually, I met my goal, running a sub. Four hours, 15 minutes with not a lot of training, as you said already, uh, Joffrey. And then I feel sore, but then I don't regret. I honestly, at, at this point, you're just, you're just, you're just flexing on all the, uh, on the listeners overall. And I'm sure that if you actually got the training that you needed to, 
make sure that you could go sub four. You achieve it with no difficulty at all. Uh, but speaking of flexing, um, your, your first startup was called Flextra Power, but I mean, even before that, uh, you did your PhD as we mentioned. Um, and between those two, I guess, specific parts of your life, you did something called being a technology transfer associate. What is that? And why do you go down that path after your PhD? Sure. Um, I think that uh, uh, it is not correct in a way. And then I have to correct you that. Uh, okay, go uh, ahead. Actually, actually, I am the technology transfer associate as well as founding my first company, Flexure Power, while I was a PhD student. So technically, okay, I did not sorry. finish. So technically, I did not finish PhD while doing that. And then um, to answer the first question, why Flexure Power? The name actually came literally during my um, shower. So at that time, when I was working on my uh, PhD project, I was working with a nanomaterial called graphene. Now I think that half a million people knows what graphene is. But then back, back in the day, 2009, 2010, I would say less than a thousand people knows about uh, the graphene material. So graphene material at that time was called like a wonderful, like a wonder material in a way. And then um, they are strong, they are transparent, they are flexible. And then the name Flexure Power, as I can in you a little bit is actually the whole purpose of the company flexure power is to realize the power of the flexible and transparent material called graphene and then i think that at that time it served the purpose really well it served my purpose of being um, the founding um, ceo of the company and then i think that um, yeah i fulfill my job of realizing the power of that material mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so couple couple i guess uh tangents that i i want to dig off off that uh correction of sorry my erroneous research, uh, research and not necessarily crediting you with wearing three hats at one time um uh number one uh was what point in your uh phd did you realize that you wanted to go off in the direction of entrepreneurship instead of pursuing the, the typical tenure route? Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that was um, around my fourth year uh, PhD training when I, at that time, almost finished with um, with a PhD thesis. Um, so at that time, I probably had like three um, patents in my name as a co-inventor. I probably has two publications at that time, already been published, and then one more being um, uh, in pre in preparation or in submission. And then um, what I had a um, realization moment was when uh, I was uh, literally talking with a friend, and then um, he is much more senior than I am. Um, and then I realized that what what I want to do with my life. And then as a fourth year, fifth year uh, PhD um, student who want to get out there in the world, basically what I am seeing myself is I have some patent, I have some um, publication, but then does it really mean anything if it doesn't create anything to the world? Uh, 
what would it be if it's just like ending up as a dissertation in a library somewhere? Um, what would it what would it make for the society? Um, and then basically that was a moment when I am thinking to myself that this technology has a lot of good potential. What can I do? I am the person who knows about this. I am the one who is who I call myself a co-inventor. I have the responsibility to further push the technology. And then the end goal was to see, we're trying to see if the technology can be applicable in any type of product. And then, yeah, we can go into like technology, um, transfer associate, like right after, because at that time, I was a blank page. I was literally like a white paper. I tried to absorb as many things as possible. And then actually, I know nothing about commercialization of the technology. So where do I learn? I go to the tech, tech, tech transfer office, and then I say, hey, you are the one who uh, uh, helped us find this patent, right? You are the one who think that this has some potential. What to do next? And then that's exactly why I volunteered myself to become a tech transfer associate. I was super lucky because at that time, like in New York, entrepreneurship is a thing. Entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial training is a thing. And then that's how I get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned that you walked up, you're like, how, how do you actually commercialize this? Um, I guess, what did you actually do as a tech transfer associate with a larger institution? Sure. At the larger institution, uh, there are a couple of things that um, they are doing at the, uh, at the tech transfer office. Uh, and then my priority was to actually play a role of the manager to the patent portfolio or patent portfolio buckets that I was a co-inventor for. And then I do all of all sort of market research, all sort of uh, uh, which company might be interested in the uh, all of the potential application that this technology has uh, has a potential for. And then um, toward the end of those uh, four months um, intern, I would call, um, I have a list of 120-something potential application for the technology that I have been um, co-inventing uh, for. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it was, I guess, lucrative for you in terms of knowledge as well as understanding where best to find the, I guess, next uh, possible product market fit uh, for wherever the uh, patent that you wanted uh, could go. I guess from there, from all the different 120 different options, which one did you pick? And I'm interested, were any of those options applicable to biomedical engineering or health tech overall? Yep. That is a super great question. And then at that time, if I remember correctly, early 2010, 2012, uh, the term product market fit was not even uh, exist yet. So How? at that time, yeah, I mean, at that time, everything that I have heard of, which is like um, problem founder fit, um, technology vertical fit, um, throughout my training, I did not know about the product, I mean, about the product uh, market fit. It was... To be honest, it was not until like very uh, recently that the term product market fit uh, was um, widely uh, used and um, yeah, um, especially in terms of uh, education. Um, 
So, um, as you know already, uh, that now Picture Power um, was the company that I was the original co-founder. And then actually we developed the connected um, insole that helped diabetic uh, patients. So essentially it's a smart insole that tracking um, temperature, pressure at the bottom of the foot for diabetic patients. And then we let them know if there is any irre uh, irregularity in terms of their foot health. So we notify the doctors, the caregiver, so we, we will be able to help them better maintain their foot health. And ultimately, we want to prevent them from having the diabetic foot amputation. Um, so um, was it in the top 10 of the 120-something application? No. Was it in top 50? Probably yes. So again, yeah, uh, it is a big list. And then I am, I was able to um, narrow it down. And then, yeah, at the same time, that was a fun process for me. Yeah. How did, how do you begin to narrow down the ideas? Because 120 is a very long list. Uh, and if you had a hundred different, 120 different ways that you could choose to apply the technology that you had, and you had a limited amount of time with which you could work on Flexure Power. Looking back now, because you're not with Flexure Power full time, if I'm again stating correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, how, how do you pick and choose what exactly to do and where to best apply slash license whatever technology that you had in hand? Sure. Um, I think that uh, running a startup is always fun in that, yes. and then uh, and then also I was in my early uh, mid twenty at the time. Uh, you think that I prioritize and uh, work on like which application? No, I pursue all 100, <laughs> 120 uh, of the application. We all have time and energy. I am in my mid thirty now. I don't, I don't do that anymore. I am a little bit wiser, but then I'm definitely lack of energy compared to when I was in my twenties. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I mean, could you tell me more about the model uh, which you pursued in order to make sure? that the, I guess, technology that was under patent uh, was developed by the right people. Because again, you said there are multiple different applications, there are multiple different companies who you could partner with, uh, and you had ownership of this technology at hand. So who did? how did you pick who you would work with overall? Because the, the, the whole reason why I'm asking this question is because I'm trying to speak from the perspective of a, gra of a graduate student who's come up with this new tech, who might be in the same circumstance as you, how would they choose the right person? How would they, if they had less energy than the mid-20s Lin, choose who best to work with for the biggest bang for their buck? Sure. Um, I think that there is no right or wrong to yeah. that. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer to that question uh, because um, the way that I'm seeing it, um, I was super lucky because I have the right mentor. And then I have a right advisor uh, with us um, from the beginning. Um, so I am who I am today uh, because actually we got a couple of right advisor from the very beginning of the um, of the founding of Fletcher Power, actually. And then I think that um, the ability of me to pursue all different applications at the same time with some priority in the um, applicable market per the suggestion from the serial entrepreneur that go before me. 
So um, I would credit a lot for that particular um, business advisor. And then one of the uh, original uh, co-founder of Fletcher Power from the beginning really give me the uh, uh, the direction on where to go. And mm-hmm. then because he has been leading some exist, uh, basically successful exist for the startup earlier. So he actually told me, uh, he actually suggested me to look at a couple of different vertical. First, if I want to uh, build a government contractor business, I can go and then talk with U.S. Army. I can go to talk with um, uh, defense and all of those uh, um, military application. But then at the same time, as an international student, uh, it is very hard for me to do it. So the second vertical that I can go to is actually medical application. And then that's how I was able to narrow it down a little bit within the medical application, how this technology might be able to um, to be applicable, uh, right? So at that time, we were working on the printing technology of the nanomaterial. How the heck did I know that I will be in the insole business? I could be in a clothing business. I could be in bedsheet uh, business. I could be in a Windows business. It could be anywhere within the medical uh, community or medical uh, application. And then that narrowed down to, I remember, about um, 15 or 16 um, potential application within the medical. So that really saved a lot of energy and effort for me to find the product market fit for Fletcher Power. Mm-hmm. So how representative of the general, I guess, graduate student inventor slash patenter experience, uh, how representative was your experience with Fletcher Power? Do you think it is outside the range of normal um, or is it kind of within the range of what someone could expect to do uh, with an invention that they've come up with during the span of their graduate student career today? Um, I think that uh, there are a few things that I can um, talk about it. Number one is that the um, we are living in a different world now, in yeah. a different era compared to uh, 10 years ago when I first do my business. The amount of resources, the amount of uh, um, mentorship is just crazy. At that time, when I first doing my, uh, um, when I was uh, working on Fletcher Power, I probably had two advisors. And then those two advisors probably spend like one to two hours per month with me. So, um, yeah, that's, that's not a lot. But then now entrepreneurship is a thing right here in, uh, UBC, um, every day, all day, literally, uh, I'm talking with, um, someone could be an undergrad student, could be a PhD, even could be a postdoc and a PI. Um, they all think about how this particular invention or how this particular new formula can potentially uh, be um, spinning off as a um, as a startup company, and then commercialize the invention. Mm-hmm. That it that it easier. Yeah. Yeah. I guess how did the university best help you when you were going through uh, to I guess push your research from an idea all the way to commercialization? Was it a lot of it by your own blood, sweat, and tears? Or was there a lot of backing that, uh, I guess, is is more available to the students and PIs of today than it was back then for you? Mm-hmm. Um, 
now looking back, I think that um, every university, almost all university, knows the importance of entrepreneurship. So they spend way more effort, time, energy, um, and uh, resources to push than to end. I mean, to push entrepreneurship um, now compared to ten um, years ago. Why? Um, I still remember. I still remember that ten years ago. Um, the very traditional um, career for PhD is, um, yeah, you graduate with your PhD, you go get a job either in industry or academia, or maybe you go and do a consulting for um, uh, management consulting, for example. Basically, you get a good salary and yeah, voila, that's it. Life is done. But then I think that now, um, university try to promote more entrepreneurship training, I am seeing way more educational resources. And then uh, especially now, um, the the economy is changing in a way, especially after COVID, the way that the way that I am seeing it is that um, small business is also participating in a bigger chunk of the economy compared to 10 years ago. So that is definitely uh, the macro trend that um, a newly graduate student or um, newly grad student actually need to uh, potentially um, take a look at as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've talked about uh, there being a lot more resources available for those who are going through university uh, to be supported in their journey into entrepreneurship overall. But I guess I wanted to focus this conversation largely around commercialization. What are the main challenges that first-time academic founders face when trying to commercialize e-technology, from your perspective? Hmm. From my um, perspective, first-time entrepreneur or first-time founder always have the problem with how to um, sell their technology. So now, looking back, I was a terrible um, salesman when I'm talking about the um, technology that I was working on. Um, I would say that communication and effective communication is the core strength that any entrepreneur should have. And then um, now even, I mean, I, I'm looking back, I'm, I'm thinking back to my first pitch um, 10 years ago. I think that it should be, it, I mean, yeah, I don't want to look at it anymore. <laughs> I was, I was the second-hand cringe was too much. Yep, exactly. To be honest, looking back at that one, and then I say that, holy crap, my 10-year-old son, my 10-year-old son can do a better job than me. So again, coming back to the point of how first-hand um, like, um, founder can uh, do a better job, effective communication with all different stakeholders, not just investor. They would need to talk to partnership. They would need to talk to potential employee. They would need to talk with uh, um, almost everyone. And then the skill of writing a grant in order to potentially um, bring the product to higher technology readiness level. That's how you are going to um, build the uh, successful business from the mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. So you, you've mentioned three things there. Um, bringing the technology to a higher technology readiness level. You've mentioned being able to write grants so that you're able to bring the technology to higher technology readiness level. 
and you've mentioned communication with all the different stakeholders. Um, I guess, what are the big pitfalls uh, that you've seen uh, the startup founders face beyond these barriers? What are the common mistakes that they've made? Perhaps do they not know about who to engage and who to communicate with? Or are there other common mistakes that you looking back now would have you know, reached back to your old self and been like, don't make that mistake now? Sure. Um, yeah, I have been working with a lot of um, um, startup founder in my capacity as the um, entrepreneur in residence here at UBC. I'm seeing from my perspective that the most common mistake that um, any entrepreneur are making is not dreaming big enough. I'm clearly seeing that the vision of the founder should be really making the change in the world. And then you you can dream big and then you execute small. And that's how you're becoming a very, I would say, um, that's how you're going to become a um, successful uh, founder. And then that's how you're becoming inspirational entrepreneur. You dream big. Here's how you're going to change the world. But then you need to take a baby step. Execute small. Here's my plan for the next six months. Here's my plan for the next 12 months. For the next four years, five years. Here's how we're going to do. Nobody can predict the future. But then that's how you as an entrepreneur will build your career, will build your credibility by dream big and start small. Mm-hmm. What's really conspicuous about everything that you've said, dreaming big, communicating, writing grants, uh, being able to uh, you know, work on your tech is the fact that you haven't mentioned intellectual property. That's, that's a thorny issue at times when going from a university-supported setting to going out in the big wide world where you need to have a clear idea of who owns what early on so that there aren't unexpected barriers in the future. Um, how exactly, I guess, what were the pitfalls or barriers uh, that... I guess, new founders face when it comes to transferring IP in the process of commercializing a technology that they've worked on during the course of their education? Um, it actually relates to effective communication, the way that really? I'm seeing it. Yep, because um, if you, as a graduate student or postdoc, you can communicate, um, you, you can actually communicate with your PI, and then the PI can communicate with... Uh, uh, any university tech transfer office to make them know that, hey, we have the, um, this interesting, um, idea. We have this, in, uh, we have this novel innovation. We want to bring it to the market. We want your help. Technology transfer office, believe it or not, they are overwhelmed, but then they want to be helpful. They, they are really there to support you, but then you as the entrepreneur, need to let them know that you are working on it. If you don't let them know, how do, how do they know? They will not. And then that actually lead to my next point uh, was that um, the tech transfer office, usually at any university, are overwhelmed. They are super busy because there are a lot of application. There is a lot of pattern application out there. There is no way for them to know which application or like which pattern is good. It is really up to the team to effectively communicate that this technology is the best. And here's the reason why. So do the homework before going 
uh, to talk to them. Mm-hmm. So is what you're saying to some extent that you have to sell them on the validity as well as the outstanding nature of your technology so that they're willing to put that extra bit of resource towards uh, ensuring that your tech is able to be commercialized a little more successfully than otherwise if someone just tosses a tosses an idea that they've worked on at them? Yeah, it was um, it was kind of like that. It is is it like a sewing ship as well, Geoffrey? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Met. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.